As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems all in Notion to support the business as we grew and it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. Done a lot of silly things of you, Zach, but this one something doesn't quite feel right. <laughs> that was uh, the first ever video that me and Zach filmed after announcing the channel, and then the first month it got four hundred thousand views, and it's now on like one point four million views. That's Jamie Ross Thorne, former half of the Zach and Jay Show, and current YouTube advisor to clients like Cody Sanchez and Morning Brew. Back in 2018, Zach and Jay posted, we entered the world's strangest sport, a video where they take part in the age-old Welsh tradition of bog snorkeling. That video was the catalyst for the channel's explosion, becoming one of the fastest growing channels on YouTube at the time. But how did this happen? What if I told you Jamie stole that first idea, but in a way that you'd never even know? It's, it's an interesting one, uh, abstract extrapolation, where you're working out why this video has performed really well and trying to come up with more video ideas around why it's performed really well. Yes, Theory's highest performing video was uh, visiting an abandoned town in the US with no laws and it had 25 million views. And I didn't even watch the video, but I was thinking to myself, like, what could we do around this space? Like, from there, we then just, like, changed that format. So we tried bog snorkeling in the middle of Wales. Then we tried the world's most dangerous football sport in Birmingham and that got like 3 million views. Then we tried the world's most dangerous sport, which was cheese rolling, and that got 1 million views. None of those videos, someone would have ever looked at them and said, oh, you've copied Yes Theory with this. So in this episode, you'll learn what's working on YouTube today, where YouTube is headed, how YouTubers can monetize their channel, and how you can steal ideas for your own channel. By the way, my video editor, Connor Conaboy, joins us for this episode too. It's a lot of fun. So now let's talk to Jamie about how the YouTube landscape has changed since he started in 2018. Me knowing everything that I know about YouTube, looking at it purely from a platform point of view, I think YouTube have been extremely ambitious with the scope of what they are as a platform. Previously, it was just a video platform. You know, like you wouldn't see that many short clips. You wouldn't see that many long clips. 
but they've made an emphasis that they really want to push for long form content. TV screens are their fastest going screen. So that would also imply that more long form content is going to be pushed on the platform. They're also going uh, taking attacks at Twitch with uh, live stream stuff and gamer uh, play. There was over 2 trillion views and gaming pl- on gaming uh, views. They're also going for sports. So they just got a 2 billion bid for their Sunday NFL ticket. So YouTube as a platform, I think, has been extremely ambitious with the different areas that it's now attacking. To be a YouTuber can mean so many different things. When back then, I think being a YouTuber was was simply making videos. So that's what I'd say from like a platform point of view. From a creator point of view, I think the algorithm is is rewarding higher quality stuff more and rewarding having an audience less. Previously, you used to be quite comfortable if you had a million subscribers, your videos would get distributed to those guys. But nowadays, based on kind of TikTok and and TikTok's rapid rise, I think they're rewarding content that just gets watch time and just gets clicks and and keeps people on the platform much more than they are uh, actually having an audience. So I think that's good for new creators in some ways where they don't have to spend years like slowly brick by brick building up an audience. It could be seen as a bad thing for a and uh, creators with large audiences because they've just got to keep raising the bar all the time. They can never get uh, complacent. But I also do think there's something negative in there as well of just like new creators entering the space. They think they can go viral straight away when the traditional model, you would have to earn your stripes and build up that audience really slowly. And uh, once you once you had them, it was worth loads for you. When nowadays, I think people won't build those bricks as patiently and, and actually learn how to create great YouTube videos. I think there's something interesting that can be touched on with that point as well. Of like, this encourages really smart entrepreneurs to enter the space. People who have seen how lucrative it can be to have a YouTube channel, they don't mind um, spending 25 grand a month to grow their YouTube channel. When a creator from day one who doesn't have the experience and know how to run a business, how to how to create really good videos and really good content, I think that can make it quite difficult to them because they're not competing with really well-resourced people. So yeah, a few things in there. Do you think with how the algorithm is favoring like videos over having subs right now, to me, it seems like there's a double-edged sword where that's really good for new creators, but it also puts a lot of emphasis on like not, there might not be as much of an incentive to innovate once you find something that works. How does that play into ideas and brainstorming videos when you could just do the same thing because that's what feeds the algorithm? Am I really incentivized to change up my content? Yeah, I, I think it, it it does explode innovation with low lift formats. And I think that's why you're seeing lots of videos of like on the street stuff go viral because anyone else, anyone can pick up a mic with $150 and go out and film and have something go viral and do it again and do it again and do it again. So that's why that there's innovation with the low lift stuff. But yeah, I really do think it does stifle the higher lift stuff because you found what works with your channel. And there's so much variance with like success and not success. Like if the video isn't received well by your audience or by the wider world, it won't have like a threshold of 250k views 150k views like it can really flop so i think uh, creators who do find certain formats stick with them and it's also yeah i I don't know i think that's kind of a bit of a problem with youtube in general a lot of people just look at what works and imitate and copy that without really adding their own flavor to it yeah it's interesting because i'll see some of these youtubers that uh we'll take like noah kagan's channel and he does a lot of these you know i asked this millionaire how they did this and here's like another subgenre of millionaire and here's a subgenre of millionaire my mind as an entrepreneur kind of goes through what is the actual business model of this? Because, you know, typically you would attract an audience member, then you would 
nurture that relationship, build trust. But as Connor's saying, if I'm kind of feeding them the same video in a different package five times over, it doesn't necessarily feel like I'm building a deeper relationship with each individual. It seems purely let's bring in new people to be aware of me. But then where does it go from there? Yeah, yeah, I agree, man. I agree. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of boring, man. In, in my mind, it's, uh, and especially seeing so many people kind of explode underneath that model of asking, what have I seen recently? Asking college students about X, asking this person about Y, and they're all like just changing tiny bits of the video format. And it's obviously performing quite well. But yeah, I, I think the creators do have a bit of a risk of ingraining themselves too much in in a in a format so as soon as noah wants to do something else slightly outside of that yeah it could absolutely burn even though it's doing quite well now that was always something that me and zach were quite conscious of when we set up our channel sneaking into events performed really really well for us but we just didn't want to be known as like the sneaking guys we saw a few creators who'd like absolutely exploded past the 100k subscriber mark who were doing like rooftopping so they'd sneak they'd like climb a crane they'd uh find the way onto a rooftop of like these big london buildings and they absolutely exploded with this kind of really unique style of content but they just didn't diversify their content style quick enough. And as soon as they tried, you know, like if you're rooftoping three years in a row, you kind of get a little bit bored of that. And same with sneaking into events. And if your audience aren't there for you on what you can provide in your special flavor, then if you do a different action, they don't want to see the action, uh, the different action. They want to see be there for what they know you for. So yeah, there's that risk as well. You had mentioned people are taking ideas without really putting on their own flair. How do you go about taking that idea and putting your own flair on it? Like, how do you steal like a YouTuber ethically to, you know, capitalize on videos that have already worked, but isn't just ripping it off? Yeah, I actually wrote a little piece on this today. I think there's like three ways that I think about it. There's like direct extrapolation. And that's when you change like one simple aspect of a video title and do it yourself. And that's quite, quite risky of just copying someone else. I think it's fine to direct extrapolate from your own videos and it can perform really well. Um, but yeah, you want to be careful doing it to someone else. There's indirect extrapolation when you change like a combination of a few different things. And there's abstract extrapolation where you're working out why this video has performed really well and trying to come up with more video ideas around why it's performed really well. And that's something which I did for the Zach and Jay show. So like, yes, there is highest performing video was uh, visiting an abandoned town in the U S with no laws and it had 25 million views. And I didn't even watch the video, but I was thinking to myself, like, what could we do around this space? Like people, it's really curiosity evoking. It's kind of surprising that this thing still exists. It's going to have like characters in there. And so I kind of started looking at like, strange traditions based in the UK. And our first ever video was bog snorkeling. So I found like this really strange thing, this bog in the middle of Wales, people flying from all over the world. So it's going to be a lot of strange characters there. I was very surprised it was still existed in my like for myself, so let alone what the viewers think. And it would, be, would have been a great like video to document. And so that was uh, the first ever video that me and Zach filmed after announcing the channel. And in the first month, it got 400,000 views and it's now on like 1.4 million views. That's crazy. And then like the the direct extrapolation from there, we then just like changed that format. So we tried bog snorkeling in the middle of Wales. Then we tried the world's most dangerous football sport in Birmingham. And that got like 3 million views. Then we tried the world's most dangerous sport, which was cheese rolling. That got 1 million views. So I think that you can, but none of, none of those videos, someone would have ever looked at them and said, oh, you've copied. Yes, there is this. But we we kind of like extrapolated what worked from these high performing content areas and applied it on ourselves and then created formats around there that work well for us. Yeah, I see uh, on the playlist channel, you guys have uh, 11 variations of the sport yeah. videos. 
So when you're doing that, they all vary in views. How are you evaluating these videos after? Because not every idea you come up with is going to blow up. Sometimes you repeat the same idea and that doesn't blow up. How do you, how are you looking at videos after you post? Back then we weren't really looking at videos whatsoever other than the views, to be honest. Like we, I don't even remember looking at our attention curve, to be honest. Um, but yeah, man, mainly the views, mainly the, the views one, but also how much we enjoyed it too, yeah. to be honest. Interestingly, looking back at the videos that didn't perform well, like me with my like, analytic strategic hat on now, because that's pretty much all I do, just like analyze YouTube videos, see why they work and try and replicate it. I, you can see what we did wrong. And, and essentially we were just kind of inexperienced. Like we were, Zach had run a channel for about a year and a half before me, but I'd only really uploaded 30 videos or something. Not, I don't even think that like 20 videos in our first year, we only realized how important a thumbnail was like four months in, five months in a post and weekly. And that was with Nico Milana. Like we used to upload the video and while it was uploading, Zach could like change the thumbnail. So <laughs> looking back, yeah, there's so many like common errors that we made uploading videos that I can only uh, identify looking back. So like really long intros were one of them. Uh, not building up tension was another one. Really long outros was another one. So um, yeah, you, it's fairly easy to see now looking back. But at the time we didn't really do that much like real time analysis. Do you think that the the bar has been raised in the in the eye of the viewer for how good a title and thumbnail must be? Because I hear these stories and, and I see videos that are like older that did really well where the thumbnail is just shit. And we're over here busting our butt trying to make a great thumbnail and sometimes it doesn't go anywhere. So I'm wondering if, if the bar has been raised or if the idea is just so much more important than the thumbnail itself that the idea is really what moves the needle past and present. It's, it's an interesting one, uh, thumbnails, because I think you can overthink them big time. Like when you've got them, you've got like a massive screen in front of you, you're doing all these tiny details. Like that chicken getting thrown into the airplane, it's a distressed chicken, it's an airplane, and it's a red circle around it yeah. with a guy in a high-vis jacket. Like I, I doubt that they spent ages, ages, ages working on that. And I, and I think that sometimes like the only thing that you're trying to do with a thumbnail is make it pop and make it stand out and make someone stop scrolling or make them click to that out of the 12 other options on the home screen. So, um, yeah, like has the standard been raised? People are definitely putting more emphasis on that. But I, I do think, yeah, it's going back to the basics of just like, does this thing pop and almost taking away the complexity like something that i used to do and and still do occasionally is like the squint test so like i close my eyes and look at a thumbnail like that and does it stand out there's a tool called thumbs up tv which you can compare it the thumbnail based on like phone and desktop and you can see the time zone so that's a good little tool for seeing whether it pops but yeah going back to that point on virality as well i think like sometimes you never really know what what's going to work so even that fashion week video which like changed the channel's uh, our lives and the channel where it was at completely. We weren't actually ever going to upload that video after the first set and we didn't think it was good enough. Yeah. And then we went back to it. Then we filmed like a second day and we're like, oh, it's probably good enough to upload. And then it absolutely exploded the channel. And I think that's um, that's something with like good thumbnails as well. It's like easy to look at the ones that work and say, ah, that's why it works. But there's also a bit of like magic sauce in there, which you never really know is going to absolutely explode. Yeah, and I noticed on um, Zach's latest video on the Fashion Week, thumbnail changed a couple times, and it took just a little bit to go, and then they found it, and 4.3 million views right now. Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah. So I'm I work with Cody Sanchez as an advisor, and it's not something which I uh, was ever like really on top of is like the thumbnails. But we've got a thumbnail guy at the moment who's like really shit hot with like the analytics and like the 0.3% increase after an hour upload. But yeah, there's definitely, I think, yeah, there's a bit of a magic source in there somewhere of 
not changing too much, not getting overly uh, bogged down by data and by small nuances in something that is quite simple, does this pop and grab attention. Um, and also, yeah, seeing what works and, and learning from it every time. Do you think people are, are too optimized right now? Because it, it blew, I, I'm very surprised you said like you guys didn't really do any evaluation beyond views. And that's like so different than how people approach, at least big YouTubers approach videos now. I think overall, yeah. I think overall people are too optimized. In my mind, views are the most important thing. Views include click-through rate. Views include watch time. Views also kind of include what YouTube want to push. So even if you don't like directly take from it, you can see the general stuff that's kind of working on the platform. So that I was actually like really on top of it with views, like I mentioned with the Yes Theory example, um, but just not itty-bitty uh, data bits. I'm, I'm still not, to be honest. Seems to work. <laughs> yeah. After a quick break, Jamie and I talk about whether podcasting on YouTube actually works. So stick around and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several podcast movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. And now back to the show. Your background's in entertainment style videos. 
you know, and now you're, you're consulting with Cody Sanchez, who is probably more so known in like the business realm. How do you mash these two things together? Are you, do you find yourself trying to pull in a lot more of the entertainment side into these videos that often could be more talking head style? I, uh, I kind of went into YouTube from an entrepreneurial angle. I, uh, really, I saw YouTube as setting up a business. I saw it as creating a big audience that I could then create products for. So I've always absolutely loved entrepreneurship. I run a business before the YouTube channel as well. So it's content that I do love consuming. Like I, I love people in, in her niche. Um, I love yeah consuming that content. Yeah. I don't know, man. Like I think a lot of a lot of the the thinking and strategy behind what me and Zach did for our own channel, it can be applied elsewhere. So like the longevity questions we were asked, how do you like increase that fan affinity for you? Um, how do you create sustainably, but also um, try and have like rocket ship growth? Like how we found ideas for the Zach and Jay show can very easily be applied to like how I find ideas for Cody and how we we find ideas. And, and same with longevity questions and how we monetize it and how we do it all. Cody seems to not be able to burn out, but how we do it without like burning out the creator. Um, yeah, it's, it's fairly similar. It's fairly applicable. Do you think it's stupid to try to grow a channel from nothing based on podcast interviews? <laughs> it depends. Cause I think if that's anything but a podcast, uh, channel, then it may be difficult having that audience move on to the other bits of content that you do. But if it is just purely a channel that you're trying to grow to promote the podcast, then nah, I think it's a great show. Well, I mean, the channel itself, I mean, we, we talk about this sometimes because the channel started as, hey, the show is interesting. We should do a video version of it. And then as time has gone by, we've realized, you know, these are not the best uploads for YouTube to push out to random people and have people click through and watch the yeah. whole thing. We should do some solo videos too. So now we're kind of doing both. One thing I would say on like YouTube podcasts and can you use them for clips? I think you need to have like a really clear payoff for uh, viewers or a really clear kind of narrative that moves on from one point to another. Colin and Samir do this quite well. So they'll interview someone and each point will address like a different aspect of a story, which would like add a lot of value to the viewer. But it's not just kind of like this waffly thing, like a podcast can be that goes here, there and everywhere that people kind of listen to a bit more passively. Another interview that I saw do quite well on that was like that John guy who used to work at YouTube. He did a video with Paddy Galloway yeah, and it was like yeah. 19 minutes long. And you can see how different the conversation is to a normal podcast. Like it's edited so that Paddy's talking in like bullet points as opposed to a conversation flow. So yeah, I think you just need to be really clear. Like what does the viewer get out of it? And I think you, you can do it, but it does need to be, it can't be a lazy thing. You need to be very conscious of what the viewer is getting from it. Let's say I'm a I'm someone listening to this and I want to get started on YouTube here in 2023. What do you think is a good starting point for me to start thinking about how to construct my channel and start to get viewers? Looking at the highest performing content in your niche from fellow creators, looking at five to 10 creators, looking at the three to five highest performing videos, uh, seeing if you can categorize them into high performing content areas, brainstorming from those high performing content areas and working out what content you would like to film. So that I think is the best starting point. There's also longevity questions of like, how are you going to monetize this? It's something really interesting happened the other day where yes, they announced they were doing a course. It was, uh, they've got 8 million subscribers. They announced a storytelling course, something that they're the best people in the world that I feel. It was for $350 and people absolutely hated it. They were pissed. People literally were saying, this is the downfall of Yes Theory. And then on the other hand, you've got Ali Abdal with 4 million subscribers. So half the subscriber at Mount selling a YouTube course for $2,000 to $5,000. And his audience absolutely love how much money he makes from this course because he shares it. So I think there's, um, you 
there's there's something about the relationship with the audience and having them expect that you are not going to make money off them, but you're going to have this relationship where you're going to offer products and services that enhance someone's life and you're going to charge for it so you can keep doing what they love doing. So I'd actually like think about that, maybe not from day one, because you don't want to plan too much in that space with zero audience, but think about that really quickly and um, yeah, almost race to that point where you can get some revenue off your audience. I love that because thinking about the relationship you're going to have with the audience when it comes to monetization, it's really interesting in Yes Theory's case because they've been so like entertainment focused and a lot of people in their audience, the only time they really hear of courses is when it comes to like drop shipping scammers because that's when like yeah. commentary YouTubers start making videos about it. So when they're presented with this course, they're like, what is this? Well, like, is this one of those scams versus Ali Abdal's yeah. who it's like more people along the line of our audience where they're expecting that and they see the value in the vast majority of these types of programs and don't really touch upon like the scam side of things. Yeah, definitely. I definitely think there was um, things that yes, they got wrong that were maybe not basic, but very easy to point out in retrospect. Another interesting point that I heard, because I spoke with Angus Parker, who's like Ali Abdal's general manager. He's been, I think he was the first employee and pretty much like, is his right-hand man. And he said something interesting in that the extension of the product that Ali Abdal offers is premium information because Ali Abdal offers information. Yet if Yes Theory offer entertainment, the extension of that offer is a, mm. is a premium entertainment product. And instead it's an education right. product. It's yeah. not really that entertaining. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But again, I think that's why you want to embed this expectation that you are going to offer something with your audience early rather than later. It also really comes down to like, what are people coming here for? You know, that's why I think that there is a spectrum between entertainment and education in the creator world, because some people like entertainment time and education time is often different in people's minds. It's like I'm sitting down. I want to level up something. I want to learn a skill versus like I'm sitting down just to pass the time and not think about things, not worry about like reaching the the perfect version of myself. And yeah, I would argue that yes, theory is very much on the entertainment side. So to go to an audience that has come here for this and offer something that is inherently going to be only interesting to a small number of those people, it's it's challenging. Like an email in, in my world, I would try to segment my audience because I use mostly yeah. email and I would know that. But like in YouTube, you can't really segment your subscribers and send that video to just the people who would be interested in it. Yeah, I mean, that was, I did quite a lot of digging into it because it was really fascinating to me, like what happened there. The idea that you can have double the audience size, literally 8 million subscribers and charge 17 the price, 17% the price of two grand and your audience hate it. That I thought it was really, really interesting mm -hmm. how you get that right. And yeah, what me and Angus spoke about was, yeah, having, having email is the main push, not primary videos. Like Ali Abdal's never done a sole video on his channel to sell any products. He does little segments within them, potentially pushing people towards the product, but that's like the hardest push he does. Every other push is towards his email, which, and then that does the talking. So I think it's kind of interesting. It's like the pretty face online just like warms you up, but then it's like the email who actually like, you know, does the jab, jab, punch, ask. Um, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. That's been pretty consistent across this show about uh, video creators that come on and talk about all video being the top funnel and emails really where all their selling comes from. Oh yeah. Really? What other creators have you spoke to who do that? I mean, most of the creators I have on the show are not on the entertainment side. So it's like, it's like all of them. Most of them, if they, if they're doing YouTube, they're either say, I wish I would have done email sooner, or they say this goes to email. And then there are a lot people like, uh, Marie Poulin, Tom Frankly, 
uh, Thomas Frank, I should say, they didn't even like have an email strategy necessarily. They just did so well on YouTube and had an email list that kind of built itself. And they're like, oh, now I have this really great asset to leverage. The one example of someone that I talked to way back who did like make a primary video and sold something and that kind of changed his channel and changed his life was Ron Segal. He has a channel called Flux Academy. He teaches people uh, UX and UI design. And he was doing he was doing like free design tutorials and things like that for literal years and then said, I have a course now. And people loved it and changed his life like overnight. Right. But again, that was that was an education. That was an information based business. It's so interesting, man, because like the entertainment creators that I know, the last thing that they want to do is like build an email newsletter with an email strategy of consistently posting out. It's just so far opposite of like messing around the Internet um, and videoing it and having lots of fun and getting loads of views. And yeah, the products that they sell was like merch. Merch probably is best to do a dedicated, maybe not a dedicated video, but like an integrate that in your video content as opposed yeah. to like sign up to my email and we'll tell you about a merch. Like that's not, I think for merch, it would be better visually. But yeah, I think that's interesting. I've just seen, seen you on Twitter jamming about this stuff around monetization recently. And it's so fascinating to me because video, video creators broadly, but especially entertainment creators, there's this huge bifurcation between that culture and the education culture that I swim in most of the time. Because the video creators are like merch, brand deals, and that's kind of where they're living for monetization. And the other side, it's like information products, affiliate revenue, courses, things like that. And they don't often touch sponsorship or physical products. And the best business model, in my opinion, is like figuring out how you can integrate all of this stuff in a way that makes sense for, for your business. Sarah Renee Clark, YouTuber, she built a physical product called the Color Cube, which was like one of the most unique products I've seen of any creator in the last several years. And it's so on brand. Like it's perfect. So on brand. So perfect. And that's when it's it's perfect. It it integrates perfectly into what she's doing and it makes a lot of sense. But I I identify as an entrepreneur more than anything else. And so video has been a hard thing for me because I have to learn how to like have camera presence and be entertaining. I am much more in the like let's build the machine of the business. And I understand how YouTube plays a part in that. I'm not coming from the place of let's fool around on the internet and then someday try to build a business out of it. I think there's going to be so much innovation in this space as people work out what is the best business model, as businesses work out how to help people and complement things that they're lacking. So the business side of these creators. So yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting one to watch. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsors, but when we come back, we talk about Jamie's experience with burnout. Now back to my conversation with Jamie Rosthorn. I don't know if you'd say you'd burned out, but you, you know, you got kind of tired and retired, at least temporarily from your own channel. So let's talk about that a little bit. How do you, how do you do this process and protect yourself from burning out? Even if you are building a successful channel, Hmm, how do you protect yourself from burning out? Man, I actually have no idea to be honest. I think, um, there's (laughs) a, I think every creator should just like expect to burn out. And Jay, to be honest, I'd ask you that question because I all this solopreneurship stuff Dude. on Twitter, I'm like, how do they do it all? Like the email <laughs> newsletter, the podcasts, the tweets, the YouTube videos, like you, you, we did YouTube videos, you do it all. So it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Connor knows I'm like actively burning out right now. Nice. I just published in, in my uh, membership community. I do a once a month retro and I'm like, Hey guys, to be honest, like first 10 minutes of this video, I just want to talk about how I've pretty much burned out over the last three weeks. And we've, we've decided that we're actually 
slowing down video a tad so that we can focus on quality as opposed to just like trying to hit a weekly deadline on the channel. Yeah. Because yeah, it was exhausting. I mean, we we've more and more tried to go earlier on in the process towards ideation and thinking about packaging before we even like script and shoot and stuff, which just makes the whole front end of producing a video so much longer. And so to stagger that and try to hit a weekly deadline is so hard. Yeah, there was something that I was talking with someone to recently this weekend, and he mentioned that YouTube is a very interesting beast in the most YouTubers... The, uh, the scope of their product increases every single time they upload. So like it can never really be satisfied because you give Mr. Beast unlimited resources and he's going to make the biggest video in the world. And it was very much the same with the Zach and Jay show. Like if you look at the amount of effort and resources that go into each video, sometimes it's like five to 10 grand per video. Uh, now when previously we do four videos for five grand over the space of a month. Now Zach's got way more resources. He's got way more of an audience. And, and still like, I, I think if you were to ask him, are you like, what do you need? It's more money for bigger videos, yeah. for, for uh, more views. And um, like something like podcasting, a lot of creators kind of seem to, that, that really do last a long time, seem to go from videos that can that have unlimited scope to podcasts, which, which kind of don't. They're just conversations with interesting people. So like the quality of the podcast can increase dramatically based on the people that are on the podcast, but the effort required for each of those podcasts stays exactly the same. When for YouTube, it's not the case. Like usually the better videos require more effort. So I think that's something interesting to know on YouTube. And I think creators just should be very conscious of that and saying like, just being real with them. Like if it is unlimited scope on each video that we publish, we are going to burn out. And sometimes just say, fuck it. Like that's what it takes and go for it. And other times uh, lean off and, and actively say, you know what, we're not going to maximize growth right now. 